listening to The Reese Show. On this show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. <laughs> you can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E.co. Thanks. Today, I interview Roman Krisnarek about his latest book, The Good Ancestor. It's a great podcast. Roman and I got along well together, and we chat a lot about language, which is always fun. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm chatting with Roman Krisnarek, and Roman is a public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society, and he has a latest book out, which just came out in the United States. It's called The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking, and it's described by U2's The Edge as the book our children's children will think of, will thank us for reading. And his previous books, including Empathy, The Wonder Box, and Carpe Diem, Reimagined, have been published in more than 20 languages. He's also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. I'm really excited for this. And Roman, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Really looking forward to the conversation, Reese. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. Uh, and, you know, Roman and I are, the other nice thing for us is we are getting to take a break from the U.S. election. So we get to chat for this hour <laughs> thinking long term instead of, you know, minute by minute. Which is nice. Well, I'm looking forward to that as well, actually, that, you know, elections are classic myopic events focusing us on the here and now with good reason, of course. But there is a need for us as uh, societies to think far beyond the here and now. Exactly, exactly. And let's kind of dive into that for a second. So as a high-level overview for our listeners, we're going to chat mostly about Roman's book, The Good Ancestor, and a little bit about kind of the mindset itself and how we can kind of cultivate this long-term mindset in ourselves, and then also how that mindset then gets manifest in institutions and things like that. So let's start, Roman, with just kind of, I loved how in your book you talk about these six ways that we can think long. So tell us about how we can think long and be a good ancestor with those six ways. Well, the whole idea of being a good ancestor is a concept I kind of stole, really, from the immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine, as you probably know, back in the 1950s. And in later life, he said the big question facing our society is how can we be good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by the generations to come? And he thought if we're going to be remembered well, we'd need to extend our time horizon. So instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes, and hours, we should be thinking on a scale of decades, centuries, and millennia. And I think once you start grappling with that idea, um, you need to start, you know, really challenging the, the short-termism of the modern world. Because we know most of our politicians can't see beyond the next election or the latest tweet and markets spike and crash and speculative bubbles and 
you know, we're constantly pressing the buy now button and looking at our phones. And the way I've tackled this is to come up with these six different ways to think long term that you mentioned there, Reese, um, which is kind of like a mental toolkit for extending our vision towards the future. And the, there are various different ways of thinking long term. Some of them are about grasping deep time. Others are about considering issues like intergenerational justice, cathedral thinking, striving for transcendent goals, developing a legacy mindset and holistic forecasting. And they're all tapping into different parts of our capacity, our extraordinary human capacity to dance across time horizons. Because yes, we can all be looking at our phones, but in the next moment, you could be thinking about saving for your children's pension um, or thinking about writing song lists for your own funerals. It's that long-term capacity which has enabled us to build the Great Wall of China or voyage into space. And of course, this is exactly what we need today to deal with major challenges like the climate crisis, which is a long-term you know, cha challenges which will be playing itself out over decades and centuries, or the challenges around artificial intelligence. Are we going to be living in a world of lethal autonomous weapons in 10 years or 20 years? Are we going to be living in the world of Blade Runner 2049 in 2049 or not? These are the kind of questions that I've really tried to tackle in this book. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you said at the beginning, which is that you, you use the term stole, which is great because it's like there's this idea that ideas come from both like we are a, a vessel for them and so it's not like i just love that 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 frame that you put there like it's not like you came up with this amazing idea that like hey we could be good ancestors it's like no there's this thing in the past and you're just kind of revitalizing it and adding a modern spin and i think that that's a great way to kind of be less individualistic with our thinking and to say hey this is an idea that is emerging from the past and like the current present and i am a vessel for it does that kind of align with how you're thinking about you know surfacing this idea yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a believer in something that H.G. Wells said, which is that human history is, in essence, the history of ideas, that ideas shape our minds, what we what is thinkable and unthinkable. And, you know, in academic terms, I guess there's a French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, talked about this in terms of a habitus, the sort of set of ideas which shape our worldviews. And I know that, you know, on your podcast, it's partly driven by ideas around cultural evolution. And I like that idea very much myself, that we are swimming in a world of ideas which we are constantly borrowing and changing and that are metamorphosing through time. But those ideas really shape society. I mean, if you look through human history, ideas have made all the difference. The idea that you know the earth is at the center of the universe or not, the idea that men are superior to women or not, the idea that humans are separate from nature or not. And when these fundamental ideas change, our political, economic, social structures change along with it. So I'm very much driven by the power of ideas, borrowing the ideas of people like Jonas Selk, but also trying to really surface thoughts and metaphors which can speak to us today. I really think that idea of a good ancestor speaks to us today. A lot of people talk about intergenerational justice, for example, when they're thinking about long-termism, which is a concept which works for me, but for some people, it feels a little bit distant. It's about people out there who may not be born for decades, but the idea of being a good ancestor, it's about me. I'm that ancestor. It's the question is, how am I going to be remembered by future generations? And I think it situates us a bit more firmly in the long span of human time, which you know goes back tens of thousands of years, even further, and will hopefully go on 
millions of years, maybe into the future, if we're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said there about, I mean, A, on that H.G. Wells quote, it reminds me of a friend who's, you know, just talking about how thinking, what thoughts are unthinkable today that were, you know, or what thoughts are thinkable today that were unthinkable in the past or vice versa? What thoughts are unthinkable today that will be thinkable in the future? And so, yeah, I think this power of ideas to shape the world is, I think, is really powerful. And I think that you specifically, I think you do a great job of, you know, uh, the kids these days might call it memeing or something with like good ancestor is just a, it's a good meme. You know, it's like that is something it's a good metaphor that should be spread in society. And you have a couple other ones that I think are really good. Um, there's this time rebel, intergenerational justice, which you n- mentioned, this acorn brain, the ethnosphere and these future holders. Let's um, I want to talk about time rebel for a second. How do you tell, tell us about that piece of language, what that means um, and how to use that as a metaphor? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because I worked really hard at inventing that concept nice. um, because it, it to me, it really captures the idea of a new kind of political struggle we need to engage in, which is to bring future people into our decision making. I mean, if you think about it, you know, I used to be a political scientist, apparently an expert on democracy. This is about 20 years ago. <laughs> and it never once occurred to me in that time that we disenfranchise future generations in the in a similar way that women or maybe slaves have been systematically disenfranchised in the past. Future generations are given no political rights or representation. They have no influence in the marketplace. And I think we need to be taking their interests into account because our actions have such impacts uh, on them. And to be a time rebel, really, I feel is about caring about the welfare of all those future generations, bringing them into our minds when we're making big decisions. And what really inspires me is that as I've done this research for this book over the last few years, I've seen a rising time rebel movement emerge. Mm. I've discovered in a way that around the world, there are people who are dedicated to long-term thinking and intergenerational justice. So, you know, in the US, for example, there's an amazing public interest law firm called Our Children's Trust, which has launched a landmark case against the US federal government on behalf of 21 young people who are campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. It's called the Juliana case. They've also filed cases uh, in many, many states as well. But there's something extraordinary happening here, right? Because it's probably one of the most important shifts in the thinking about rights since the French Revolution, the idea of giving rights to people who may not be born for decades to future generations. And this is a real David versus Goliath struggle, but these are the time rebels of our age. They are trying to stretch the imagination and the practices of the whole legal system in this case. And you know, at the moment, they haven't been very successful in the US. They've created huge public discussion, but changing the system, of course, is very difficult. But they have influenced landmark law cases around the world for future generation rights in Colombia, in Pakistan, in Uganda, in the Netherlands. So these are just some of the time rebels who I've highlighted in my book. And then you can also find them, for example, in the scientific sphere. You may know about something called the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is Mm. collecting the world's and protecting the world's plant biodiversity. They have saved millions of seeds in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle that's designed to last for a thousand years. So it's an amazing long-term science project. Well, there's time rebels in the art world, like the Scottish artist Katie Patterson, 
has started a project, a 100-year art project called Future Library, where every year for a century, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely secret and unread in the Future Library until the year 2114, when the 100 books will be, plant, will be printed on paper made from a 1,000 trees, which have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. And the first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood. And, you know, she's never going to see the book published in her lifetime. Yeah. She's never going to meet any of the readers. But that's all about being um, a time rebel in a way. It's about moving beyond the present, moving beyond the boundaries of your own lifetime, thinking incredibly long term. So I'm all ready for this rising time rebel movement that's emerging around the world. And I, I want to inspire people to become part of it. Yeah, I love that. I think that the it's kind of fun because like being a rebel is just a good it's like being a punk, you know, it's like, don't you want to be a punk, you know? And yeah, well, that, that's why I that's why I used it, actually. In fact, just yesterday, I gave a talk to about 5000 school kids around the world. There's this amazing project called Climate Action Day. And I specifically focused on the language of the time rebel. Um as a way of trying to energizing them around taking action on climate change and other long-term issues. You know, this is an age of rebellion, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, Time Rebellion, mm. um, because we're all dissatisfied, aren't we? We know our political systems are hopeless at dealing with the challenges of our age, technological threats, ecological threats, there's declining faith in traditional parties. Um, so, you know, uh, being a rebel, I think, is a good thing at this moment in history. Totally, totally. And I think I just want to highlight and reflect a couple of what you things that you said there. One is that, yeah, if we think about rights for future people, that is a, yeah, when you start to talk about that with folks, it's like, oh, it's it kind of is a light bulb moment for them. And I think that there's a, it's a really powerful thing. And, you know, the a way, this is kind of a, a controversial thing, um, but like you can think of Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, like you can think of Black Lives Matter as a movement and then the kind of remixes or weaponizations of it. And some of like the remixes, which were okay, were things like Native Lives Matter or Latino Lives Matter. And then the remixes, which were not okay, quote unquote, were the like um, weaponizations of, you know, All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. And then there's this one of like Future Lives Matter. And so thinking about that as kind of um, a uh, an aggressive way to get this this on the folks' minds is one thing. The other thing I wanted to highlight here is, yeah, the the our children's trust piece. It's really cool that you talk about, yeah, it's a new legal battle. And then um, in your book, you also talk about some legal battles that are happening for rights, not only for future people, but rights for land, you know, which we haven't really had before. Um, and then the final thing I want to say was the seed vault. Did you see the uh, the Oreo vault? The, I guess they're making an Oreo vault next to the seed vault. No, I didn't. That sounds amazing. I'll share it with you after. Yeah, I think it's like keep the same idea with the seed vault, but instead keep the Oreos for as long as possible. So a kind of long-term thinking. Yeah, I, actually, just, just to say, can I just say yeah. briefly on Black Lives Matter? It's yeah. really interesting, actually, because one of the things I discuss in this book, The Good Ancestor, is the idea that we've colonized the future, that we we treat it like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk as if there was nobody there and future generations aren't here to do anything about it. And it's really interesting, of course, when you, you're talking about that language, or I'm talking about that language of decolonizing the future, it connects with that idea of decolonization, which has come up in Black Lives Matter. And what, what I found really interesting amongst a lot of activists involved in the Black Lives Matter movement is that the whole idea of being a good ancestor really speaks to uh, the issues. There's mm -hmm. you know, a, a great writer called Leila F. Saad, who's written a book called Me and White Supremacy. 
And she talks about being a good ancestor on the first page of her book. And I think what she's really trying to get at is that a lot of issues, for example, of racial injustice um, are very much long-term intergenerational ones. You know, these are based on long histories of slavery and colonialism. And the racism of today is being passed on from generation to generation through criminal justice institutions, in public culture more broadly, and so on. So I think that's partly why the idea of the good ancestor speaks to you know a lot of people. And then just connecting with you, what you mentioned about rights for nature, there's a really interesting movement there, as you say, not only rights for future people, but you know, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, the, the Wanganui River, sacred to local Maori people, has been given the same rights as a person in the same way that corporations were given rights in the late 19th century. Um, you know, rights as, as a person or in India, the Ganges River and the Yamuna Rivers. So this is another whole area of massive legal shift. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think um, one question actually I want to ask for you, because again, coming up, you know, the decolonizing the future again is a great language phrase here. How do you kind of like going to the meta level for a second? How, you know, from like a craftsman perspective, how do you think about you know, language construction or how language plays a role in, you know, the spreading of ideas or how did you come to, you know, these language pieces that, that, that you had in the book? Tell us a little bit more about like that, that uh, crafts project. Yeah, I think for me, it really goes back to reading a book called Metaphors We Live By, mm. by um, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, which was, I think, written in the early 1980s. But I started realizing that the metaphors we use, the language we use, shape everything. You know, they talk in that book about the idea that we have a metaphor of argument is war. So you defend an argument or you attack, attack an argument, you shore it up and so on, you win and lose it. So there's all this sort of military uh, language around it. And then, of course, there have been all those debates in the U.S., talking about the idea of tax relief or tax justice. It's a totally different way of framing things. So I've always been really interested in how we frame stuff. And I think the idea of the colonizing of the future, for me personally, is a very per a really interesting one because I'm Australian, actually. And, you know, Australia has this history of colonizing uh, and, 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 you know, destroying the lives of indigenous people and stealing their lands. And in the 18th and 19th century, when Britain colonized Australia, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius. The continent was treated as nobody's land, as if there were no indigenous people. Of course, there were. And I think now what we've also got is not terra nullius, but we've also got tempus nullius. The future is seen as nobody's time, a similarly uninhabited territory that is ours for the taking, ours for the pillaging. So the when, when I'm tackling an intellectual problem, like this problem of our short-term society, I'm constantly trying to think of what are the narratives which are shaping us. And one more thing to say on decolonizing and colonizing, of course, that the in the 20th century, anti-colonial wars, the decolonizing wars, you know, kicking the French out of Algeria and so on, those were fought with arms, with weapons. I think this um, struggle to liberate future generations from the domination of the present is one that primarily needs to be fought with ideas. We need to challenge our, our language, our thinking around short-termism and really start using our capacity to be acorn brain thinkers, to think beyond the here and now. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's interesting that Metaphors to Live By was one of the more impactful books for you as you think about language. And I guess it does, it gives a great 
overview of, yeah, how, you know, these metaphors for how we think about things change the way we think about them. Is there, I want to go one click deeper on that though. Like when you're, you know, writing the book or when you're crafting these things or when you're thinking about, you know, you made the Terra Nullius versus um, Tempest Nullius, you know, distinction. Is there like, you know, if I wanted or if one of the readers wanted to get better at the craft of <laughs> metaphorization, you know, or something like that, how, how do you, what's that process look like for you? Do you have any like tips for folks on how to do that besides reading Metaphors to Live By? <laughs> I think it's really about becoming a de detective of your own language, you know, to listen to yourself. And, you know, just at the end of each day, you can write down, well, what were the metaphors that I was using when I was having that argument with my daughter or when I was trying to make that point at work or when I was arguing in the bar with my friend about Trump, Trump versus Biden or whatever it is to, you know, once we start seeing the way that we're using language and then you just start analyzing it automatically when you're watching a news program or something like that and you develop a heightened awareness. And I think with a lot of things about life, I mean, I think it's about you become a detective of yourself and that's how we become creatures that are driven by purpose and meaning and we we self-reflect we understand who we are you know know thyself the old socratic idea um, but certainly i think we need to do that with our own language and then i think you can start thinking about how to then frame the stuff that you're in interested in but you know i have no magic sort of <laughs> formulas for for doing that probably <laughs> apart from reading metaphors we live by or um another book by george lakoff i can't remember what it's called it's something i think it's called uh, don't uh, don't think of an elephant, mm -hmm. which is another one of his later books, which is probably a little bit less abstract, a bit more accessible. Yeah, I like that. And I think, and actually, I think that what you said is true, though, which is, and is helpful advice for folks, which is for so many of us, speaking is our default mode and language is our default mode. And so as we're either doing it outwardly in speaking or writing, or if we're consuming it in listening or reading, we kind of just consume without thinking about how the language is is changing or things like that. And so even just becoming aware of yourself and how you're consuming things and the language that people are using, I think is a great first step. So that I think I think that's that's good enough for me. No, no toolkit or framework necessary. I also want to state that the um I really like what you talked about with the Terra Nullius um and the Terra and the Tempest Nullius. The in looping back to a thing we chatted about at the beginning, the uh there's this great Cory Doctorow piece about um, how terra nullius, this idea of a blank slate of land, is used with copyright law and how copyright law is like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I was you know, going through the world and I came up with this musical idea or whatever. It's like, well, actually, there's you stood on the shoulders of giants. There's this whole like ecosystem before you that came before you. And just like we were talking about at the beginning with you, it's like you're highlighting this idea and providing awesome new language to it. And also... It's not like there was a blank slate of like no long-term thinking before, you know, you, you came up with these things. So I think I like that. And I especially like the taking and saying, hey, Tempest Nullius, there's a blank slate for time here. And that's not actually true. There's like people in the future that we should care about as well. Um, so thinking of blank slates is bad. That's really fascinating. In fact, I haven't read that Corey Doctorow piece, though I've, I've read a couple of his books and think they're great. And I'll, I'll look that up. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm constantly standing on the shoulders of, of giants and playing around with other people's um, ideas and getting those ideas to try and talk to each other in new ways. Yeah. So I think I have a question here thinking about we've been chatting a lot about these ideas here and like kind of the language piece. But I think that I know for me personally, a lot of the pushback I get from folks uh, is like, okay, you're just too abstractifying, you know, like, how does this stuff, how do you think, you know, there's, especially I live in, you know, San Francisco, and there's this, you know, 
techno utopian kind of builder, you know, startup mindset, like, oh, you have to be building, blah, blah, blah. Um, and how do you think about how these ideas that you're talking about actually get manifest in society? Like, how do you, what's your like theory of change here? Yeah, well, I definitely believe, as we were talking about earlier, about the power of ideas to change society. I mean, I really think that we are swimming around in an ethnosphere, to borrow a term from the anthropologist Wade Davis, you know, the, the swirl of ideas which shape our thinking. And, you know, I once wrote a, a book called The Wonder Box, Curious Histories of How to Live, or in the US, I think it was called How Should We Live? And that I that book was based on the idea that the ideas we've inherited from the past shape us today. So, for example, the ancient Greeks had like at least six different words for love, you know, and they had different concepts of love. And they saw love in many different ways. They didn't just have the romantic love of Eros, but there was a charitable or selfless love called agape. And then there was philia, which was their word for a kind of deep brotherly love, the kind of comrade that you might sacrifice for on the battlefield. But, you know, by the 18th century, this is just one example about love, the, the idea of Eros became very dominant. So our, our idea of love is very much about a kind of romantic notion about finding one soulmate and so on. But that hasn't always been how love has been thought about and lived out in the past. So when you come from that kind of perspective, when you really believe that the ideas that we swim around in in the ethnosphere shape our actions, well, that then very influences at least what I do in terms of how I think change happens in society. You know, I think that we need to introduce the new ideas, but of course the question is, how do you do it? They need to be put in education systems and religion and legal and political institutions in the way we structure our economies. And, and of course, then those ideas then start shaping the way people's lives are lived out. But of course, it doesn't mean that I don't think we should be trying directly to change political systems or economic structures. You know, there is a dance between ideas and structures. Um, it isn't just that the structures are built on the, uh, that only come out of, out of the ideas. So I'm constantly trying to do both, as it were. So on the one hand, I'll write a book called The Good Ancestor, but I do work with and try and promote the um, movements which I think really embody those ideas. So one that just came to my mind, mm -hmm. for example, is in Japan, there's this amazing political movement called Future Design, which is all about local government decision-making. And they it's, it's actually influenced by the Native American idea of seventh generation decision-making. There's a big idea that has really had a lot of influence around the world. So that, that idea of seventh generation thinking has influenced this movement in Japan. Um, and what they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live. And they tend to divide people into two groups. Half of them are told they're residents from the present day, and the other half are given these almost ceremonial robes to wear and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out the residents from 2060 come up with much more radical plans, whether, whether it's healthcare investment or climate change action or dealing with COVID in the towns and cities where they are. And that, this method is now spreading across Japan. It's used in Kyoto and in the Ministry of Finance. I'd love to see it spreading in progressive cities and communities around the world. But there's just a great example um, to respond to the pushback you might sometimes get about ideas is, you know, that movement has taken the Native American idea of seventh generation thinking, which can be found in Iroquois communities, Lakota communities, and put it into practice in something in a way very mundane, which is just trying to decide what the water rates should be in a small Japanese town. Um, you know, it's a classic idea of ideas influencing the world. So in terms of the theory of change, 
Um, that is partly how I look at it. Um, but, you know, I've written a lot about theories of change in the past uh, in, in my previous work, but that power of ideas is the ultimate leverage point. This goes back really to the idea of systems thinking, which I know, you know, you've done a, a lot of, uh, you know, discussions around, a lot of thinking around. And if you look at the work of someone like Donella Meadows, mm-hmm. um, there you see, well, what's the ultimate lever for changing society? It's not tinkering with the tax rates. It's actually changing the paradigm uh, in which you are operating. You're changing the core ideas in which um, our social and political lives get played out. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think, so yeah, I think that that's a pretty good, uh, I think that that would uh, allay the responses of various folks. And that's like, yeah, we have this ethnosphere and that ethnosphere does impact our, you know, our institutions. And there's this dance, and I, I like, you've said that word a couple times. I think that this, you know, dance, this system, this loop, this, um, you know, dialectic or whatever between the ideas and the structures, that that's a, a nice back and forth and that this happens it's just happening all around the world all the time. And it's kind of funny because I think there's a, you know, we think about uh, how, you know, for example, this future design crew, how they got this idea of seventh generation um, from, you know, the Iroquois communities and things like that. And there's no, that like direct, I think that one difficult thing that people might not get here is because ideas are abstract and because there's no direct like causal link, it's hard to see like, oh, and there's no like value exchange there. It's like, it's not like future design people in Japan paid money to like, you know, Native American communities in America for this idea of seventh generation. And so I think some of those things that make it less legible for folks, it makes it seem like the ideas have less, less of an impact. Um, I, that's I, a really interesting point, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's probably, it's probably true that, that the, the influence of ideas on society are less legible than the more obvious things like, you know, government policies or, you know, the pronouncements of big leaders or the actions of social movement on the streets and things like that. I think you're right. Totally. Yeah. And I think, I guess that there's, I hope that in the future, as we get better and better at, you know, thinking abstractly and thinking in terms of paradigms and, and how ideas, you know, uh, shape society that we will have more legible or clear kind of uh, causal loops there or something. Um, I do. Yeah, actually- I mean, can I just say just one little yeah. tiny addition there, of course, there are some parts of society where the ideas are made very clear, like in religions, they might write down their mm. 10 commandments or things like that. You can start seeing the ideas that, that, that shape their worldviews, but in other parts of society, those ideas aren't very clearly articulated. Well, and let's actually pull on that string for a little bit longer. Cause I think I agree with you. And I think that there's a, if we think about the future of uh, humanity and how religion in the West is going down a bit and that, you know, the agnostic or spiritual or atheistic folks are coming up, but people are still searching for meaning and purpose and also for some of these like moral codes. Do you imagine, or do you have any examples in your mind of, I don't remember any of these from the book specifically of like people like religions, quote unquote, that care about the future or like implement them into like, you know, codes of conduct or norms. It's a great question, actually. I've spent a bit of time trying to think about this. Um, Of course, it depends what perspective you're coming from. Now, for my book, I went and interviewed some people in the Vatican, officials in the Vatican. Of course, they were telling me about Pope Francis's recent pronouncements in his papal encyclical Laudato Si, Praise Be, where he talks explicitly about intergenerational solidarity and intergenerational justice. And this is a kind of quite new language in the Catholic Church. So I'm not saying it's necessarily played out in practice, but certainly the the rhetoric is there. 
Well, the other day I was having a conversation with a Japanese Buddhist monk, and he was pointing out that there is a philosophy of long-term thinking in his approach to Buddhism or certain kinds of Japanese Buddhism, but it comes via an immersion in the present by meditating and being in the now, you're kind of transcending time. And then, of course, there are those religions that have ideas of reincarnation to cross time. But I think what's probably the most dynamic area of change, at least in the last 50 years, let's say, has been a kind of new religion that has risen up with long-term vision uh, over the last half century. And it doesn't look like a normal religion. It's called the global environmental movement. Mm. I mean, since the 60s and 70s, hundreds of thousands of environmental organizations of different kinds and persuasions have emerged around the world, but they all share a kind of religious centerpiece, which is the idea of the sacredness of the earth. They worship Gaia. Of course, they don't worship, they don't necessarily bow down in front of Gaia, uh, in front of planet Earth, or necessarily have any religious language in their mission statements. But they're all kind of trying to do the same thing, which is treat the Earth as something sacred, something that should be passed on intact or improved to the next generation. And that's really a kind of semi-religious idea. So in there has been become a kind of a, a package of thought and action, the environmental movement, which I think has married itself quite well with the rise of secularism and agnosticism because there's a whole set of meanings that you can get from that right people who are committed to in ecological justice environmental justice it's giving them that same kind of sense of purpose and transcendent cause or concrete assignment to use a term from the psychiatrist victor frankel um sorry existential psychotherapist not psychiatrist victor, victor frankel <laughs> yeah, having a kind of a big goal to aim at what the ancient greeks called a telos but we're getting that from a kind of massive decentralized religion, which is what environmental movement is. You know, it doesn't quite have that same problems of hierarchy and controlled power like the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, but it's giving us a long term vision, right, to to preserve the one and only planet we know that um, on, on which life can survive and on which it has evolved. Totally. Yeah, I like that. And I think that there's I like both things that you said there. One is that the existing religions will have to kind of update their uh, doctrine and teaching to, you know, be with the times. And so, you know, Pope Francis is updating and Buddhists are updating. And so everybody will kind of, um, as we need to, as a society, care more about climate change and existential risks, then we will need to, yeah, religions will update and kind of become more competitive in the religious environment by also caring about that thing. And then also, as you note, there's also the like new ones that are showing up. And I think the environmental movement is a good one. There's other stuff like, you know, kind of some of the effective altruist movement folks. And I think that there's, you know, even thinking back to the 70s and stuff like world peace and, you know, nuclear security, I think all these things share, as you say, the sense of, you know, the concrete assignment of, hey, let's like protect the earth and, and get all behind this like long-termist idea. So uh, I, I like that. Do you think though, I mean, I think we're all, you know, you and I here are kind of on the, uh, we're, <laughs> we're into long-term thinking. You wrote a book about it. You know, I'm interviewing you about it. I feel like there could be other pushback of just like, do, is there actually hope though? I mean, obviously you've got someone like Greta who's into it, who's an amazing time rebel, young kid, you know, who's going to live for a long, you know, for, and she'll be here for all the climate or for a lot of the climate crisis. But like, is there actually, like, do you get sad, you know, or like, you know, is there hope with all these things? Oh, I go up and down in a tumultuous storm of emotions and thought with regard to that kind of question. <laughs> Because on the one hand, 
I do genuinely see a time rebel movement emerging. I'm, you know, I'm not a naturally optimistic person. I have quite an apocalyptic view of the future in many ways. Um, that's why I sit around watching films like Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> or I've just been watching the Brazilian, brilliant Brazilian sci-fi dystopian series called The 3%. Uh, highly recommended. I can recommend that. Um, but when I'm, you know, thinking, uh, you know, in, in terms of, a, in a hopeful sense, I guess some of my hope from history, um, I read something really extraordinary once, which is that in the 18th century, um, you know, major figures like the political economist Adam Smith didn't even know there was an industrial revolution going on and he was right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. You know, he couldn't see it because it was fragmented and contingent. Um, and I find that a really extraordinary thought that we might be in a transformative period now of the rise of a circular economy and, and you know, these legal movements for future generations and all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't look like there's a big change when you've still got dominance by big fossil fuel companies and now big temp tech companies. But actually, we might be in a the emergence of a new regenerative society with long-term vision that cares about both people and planet into the long future. So that's on the one side. On the other side, well, of course, um, you know, I certainly don't think this is a majority view that I have by any, <laughs> any chance. And the struggles that we face in the 21st century are absolutely enormous. I mean, just think, I mean, we already know that global temperatures by the end of the century will probably go up three or four degrees and sea levels up one or two meters if we go on business as usual or even a, a reasonably reformist path. This is inevitable, pretty much inevitable. We know a lot about the future. And with that, well, what comes with it? By 2050, we'll have not 220 million refugees as we have today, but we'll have 400 million or maybe 500 million. And that brings enormous social dislocation. Um, and of course, if you're a refugee, like my father was when he came from uh, to Australia from Poland after the Second World War, he was just thinking about the here and now, about trying to deal with his immediate problems of you know, food and housing and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when you're living on the margins, you are on some level necessarily just thinking about your immediate needs. And we can see this with the rise of far-right populism across North America, Brazil, uh, across Europe. When people are insecure, they are thinking about the here and now and tend not to be thinking so long-term. And we are certainly facing a century of massive insecurity and instability. Um, and it makes people, you know, go into a kind of fight or flight. So even though there's this emerging time rebel movement that I write about and really believe in, what it's fighting against is a really fundamental, um, in many ways, the fundamental needs that people have for immediate security. But on the other hand, let me just qualify that with one thing, Reese, <laughs> which is the idea that, you know, even people living on the social margins can have a very, very long term vision. Just think of that Native American idea of seventh generation thinking. That's not like a highly privileged part of society where that kind of principles of ecological stewardship are played out. Or in Maori culture in New Zealand, the idea of waka papa, it's the Maori idea of um, genealogy or, or lineage, the idea we're in a long chain of life going far into the past and long into the future. The light happens to be shining on the here and now. We've got to spread it more widely. But it's not like Maori peoples in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand are privileged in society. In fact, they're often the least privileged people in society. So there's not like a direct relationship between your economic status and your capacity to think long term. Often, you know, people who are poor, down and out, you know, refugees, they really care about what they are passing on to the kids and, and, and the inheritance they want to leave for the future.
Yeah, I like that. So I think there's a couple juicy things in there. Um, a, yeah, I think that the this time, the 21st century, it's almost difficult to underestimate or to overestimate how uncertain and fragile it's going to be and how it's going to create so much more of that, you know, that scarcity uh, mindset within folks and that, you know, that authoritarian reflex towards more, you know, uh, security and consistency within, within folks. And also, as you say, it is not, you know, we do have this ability to think long-term both if you are out of that and if you are experiencing abundance and if you are, you know, um, still, if, you know, m- you know, less privileged or poor or what have you, you can still think long-term. That's one I think that I want to dive in for a second on, which is, I think that's something that, you know, on the show I often talk about is that there's, you know, what right now, I mean, studies show that af- after a certain amount of money, you don't get happier. And so for individuals, this is like, you know, between 45 and like $70,000 a year or whatever. And so a lot of folks, the crazy thing is that there are a lot of folks in, you know, developed countries are actually past that point. And where, you know, for me personally, I know I like, I self-tax myself 10% of my income because like the rest of the money is not going to help. Um, and so I can kind of, operate from that it's like i'm in easy mode for operating from that long-term perspective and i think that by emphasizing that and maybe it's just because my listeners are more like that and i don't like chat with that many people who are in extreme poverty or whatever i think i overemphasize perhaps the like how privilege or you know abundance then allows one to long do long-term thinking on the other side there's this like hey how can kind of you know you know low-income folks or you know disadvantaged folks also how do they do long-term thinking as well yeah, I guess I'm not sure. How how are you thinking about, you know, that tension there or like how long-term thinking, I don't know, can be, uh, or am I, am I, am I talking about that wrong where I'm kind of overemphasizing the, the fact that like rich people should like really self-tax themselves more? What do you think about that? Oh, there's lots of things in there. Um, I mean, first thing I would say would be that what I found is often it's the most privileged parts of society have the biggest problem with thinking really long-term. Um, you know, the classic case is a kind of aristocrat who has a very narrow idea of what their legacy should be. It's about passing on the the family home or land just to the next generation and keeping it in the bloodline. But it's not about any sense of responsibility for the universal strangers of the future, for something much bigger than just their own family lineage. And of course, if we're going to be good ancestors, we have to widen the perspective of who our ancestors are, you know, and, and who our descendants are. You know, we've got to have a, a more transcendental sense of where our obligations, our responsibilities lie. I mean, I certainly like that, the idea and then, you know, the movement of, you know, people like yourself, uh, you know, taxing themselves 10%, the, you know, giving what you can, this kind of, these kinds of movements are, are really important. Um, and obviously it's more privileged people in society who can do that. But of course, when you're on the social margins, um, the poor and the powerless often are, passing on different things rather than material things. I did a lot of research in Guatemala with um, Maine indigenous peoples in the 1990s. They were very intent on passing on things, preserving their culture, preserving their language. And this partly comes out of having very strong community bonds. You find this in religious groups too, sometimes even in sports teams, a sense of the long term coming through being part of a community and knowing that they're going to be members of this community long into the future. Um, even New Zealand's uh, rugby team, the All Blacks, they're called, mm-hmm. the rugby union team, they live by this philosophy and play by this Maori philosophy of Papa that I mentioned, the idea of respecting people in the past and future. 
the idea of wearing the their jersey, their all black jumper, uh, or, or when, which they play in, you know, it's a sort of a, a sign of something that they must respect. It's almost something sacred, and they need to, um, you know, play well and respect the team and sort of not saw the represent the the reputation of the New Zealand rugby team through, you know, being you know, drinking and getting in brawls on the street, whatever it is, all sorts of things, which is all about preserving the idea of the team as a community. And so I think there's this potential for long-termism in all sorts of um, structured communities. I think it's harder when societies break down, when we become individualized and and, and animized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think that it's similar to kind of the legibility thing we were chatting about before. It's like, it's both easy mode and more legible for someone like me to quote unquote think long term by just like self taxing myself ten percent, and uh, also there are folks who are in more positions where they have a more of a scarcity mindset and they they too can think long term, but it might not be the same like uh, you know self taxing the money thing. So one thing that we chat about there that I want to kind of wrap up with as we get to the last you know you know five or ten minutes of our conversation is we chat about the, you know, the scarcity in society and kind of the instability in the, you know, what I would call or what Engelhart would call the authoritarian reflex here. How does, you know, and we just had a, an election in the United States, which looks very likely to go for Biden, but where Trump got a lot of votes and you just had, you know, Brexit um, in, you know, out there in the UK. How do you connect, you know, those, you know, the authoritarianism or, you know, democracy, how do you connect that to kind of these long-term thinking ideas? How do they intertwine with each other? They intertwine a lot. By the way, you just mentioned Inglehart. Were you thinking of Ronald Inglehart, uh-huh, yep. a sociologist? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't read him for years. I used to love his work on modernization and postmodernization. It's good. Um, it's real good. It's good stuff. And in fact, I mean, his work partly inspired my interest in the relationship between democracy and authoritarianism and long-term thinking. Because in my book, I mean, this is to answer your actual question yeah, you're now, good, you're good. about that authoritarian <laughs> reflex. Um, in fact, there's a one of the really interesting areas of authoritarian reflexes i have found in researching this book that even people who are sort of apparently progressive in some ways they'll often throw up their hands and say oh these politicians these you know democratic politicians they're absolutely hopeless we can't deal with climate change or tech threats from biosecurity and stuff uh with them in power what we need is benign dictators Mm. we need enlightened despots we need to become more like china like look at their amazing long-term green infrastructure investment. Oh, we need to become more like Singapore. They might have some limits on civil and political rights, but look at their long-term investment in housing and education and healthcare. And so there's this lure towards authoritarian solutions to the stuff that we find difficult. Now, that's a really interesting question. Is it actually true empirically that authoritarian governments perform better than democratic governments when it comes to long-term public policy, for example? And that's something I directly looked at in my book. And I work with a great uh, statistician called Jamie McQuilkin, who's developed something called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index. It's a quantitative measure of long-term government performance for 122 countries across 10 different indicators, environmental indicators like renewable energy in the, in, in the energy system or deforestation, economic indicators like wealth inequality, social indicators like long-term investment in primary school education, all put together into a single number. And the Intergenerational Solidarity Index shows that you know the countries that are on top are countries like Iceland and Sweden, but also some non-wealthy countries like Costa Rica and Uruguay and Sri Lanka. The UK is number 45th out of 122 on long-term public policy. The US is number 65, so not doing very well. But when you plot 
countries on the intergenerational solidarity index on one axis and on the other axis you plot their levels of democracy using standard democracy scores like one called the VDEM liberal democracy index from University of Gothenburg. What you find is that a line going um, 45 degrees upwards, which is basically the more democratic a country is, the more long term it's public policy and the less democratic they are, the worse their long term public policy. So out of the 25 highest scoring countries on this index of intergenerational solidarity, 21 are democracies. And of the 25 lowest scoring ones, 21 are authoritarian governments. In other words, that idea that we should all become, you know, we should have benign despots or enlightened despots, that is just not historically or not empirically accurate. Mm -hmm. In fact, the opposite is the case. We need to deepen democracy. Every country could become more democratic. And that's how we're going to get more long term results. But of course, as we know, in the United States, you know, there are big questions about democracy and it's... Um, you know, it, 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 it's life, it, it, it's lifespan, actually, there's so many challenges to basic rights going on, as we can see during the, you know, the election counts, which have been going on and the, the challenging the idea of the legitimacy of one person, one vote. So there's a lot of fragility there in the system. Totally. Yeah. And I think I like your, well, A, one note on the Engelhardt thing is, uh, yeah, he just, uh, in 2018, he wrote a book called Cultural Evolution. And also, it's just, it's similar to the stuff that you'd read in the past about materialism and post-materialism, but it just kind of updates it with new information and like new values surveys. Uh, so I'll send that to you. I, I like read a review of it. Yeah, also, please do. I love that stuff. It's good. It's good. And I guess for our listeners, just as a note, what the, the there's this famous map called the Engelhardt Weitzel Cultural Map, and it shows, it maps all the countries in the world about how what their values, like whether on the x-axis is, um, you know, uh, basic needs values versus self-expression values. And on the y-axis is like traditional values versus like secular values. And so you can see kind of in the top right corner, there are folks who are secular and self-expression-y, like a lot of um, Nordic countries. In the bottom left corner, there are folks who are more based in self-needs, you know, or like basic needs and also more traditional or religious, um, like some countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's kind of roughly speaking what that is. I think, and as you're talking about this, like the energy, I, I like that part of your book, the Intergenerational um, Solidarity Index. And I do think, I hear what you're saying that like, if you want to have a, like democracies, uh, you know, the like, you know, benevolent dictator or whatever, that that's not necessarily a good way to think long-term. I guess there's a separate question, which is, is the dictator a good way to bring more solidarity, a dictator and authoritarian government, a good way to bring more like safety and security in the short term? I think that's just a, like a separate question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think intuitively we, we think that because we got the idea that an authoritarian government can sort of bring order. That has exactly. always been the language of authoritarian governments across Latin American history, for example, the idea of order and progress, that's, the, that's what's on the Brazilian flag, basically. You know? um, but of course, authoritarian governments are also incredibly fragile, you know, and um, they're, they're brittle uh, in ways, and they create different kinds of insecurity. Um, so maybe they might protect your borders from outside aggressors, but then if you're trying to express dissent, well, maybe you don't feel very secure, like if you are somebody who believes in freedom of speech and you happen to live in China. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's different ways of thinking about what security is and, and how people experience it in those kinds of regimes. But certainly I don't, you know, have my fingers crossed hoping that a, a dictator is going to come along and sort out the, all the problems in the country 
where I live. I actually have a lot of faith in human beings uh, to do that grassroots change, participatory democracy. I'd like to revive the ancient Greek kind of ideal of uh, citizen assemblies, but widening it out from just well-off men to everyone in society, including teenagers, who I think can be part of our democratic discussion. So we really, when we're thinking about long-term thinking, we envisage a plurality of futures, the futures of people from many different perspectives and walks of life. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I think uh, the hope is that uh, going forward into the future that we will have these beautiful bottom-up, you know, democratic institutions that also, you know, co-evolve with technology and digital technology in this great way. And embedded within them are these this new ethnosphere of long-term thinking. And then it gets embedded in community, you know, committees, government committees and laws and all these kind of things. So excited for that future. Um, so as we wrap up here, Roman, is there a place, A, as a note for folks, yeah, it, it's a great book. I, I really like, and I've read a good amount of like random long-term thinking books. And I think that the Good Ancestor, for me, I liked it because it just provided, I mean, the language that we've been chatting about this whole time, Roman, is, is really good. It, it provides you with a lot of kind of concept handles or, you know, metaphors to think about this. So I think that's great. And also it just does a good job of providing tons and tons of case studies, you know, like the seed vault or like, you know, the Oreo vault or whatever. So um, the book just came out in the United States, which is great. Uh, Roman, is there anything else? Like where can people find, or any, anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? No, I think we've had a really interesting conversation. I've really loved it. And um, if people want to find out more about my work, apart from looking at that book, go to my website, romankrasnarek.com, and you'll find all sorts of videos and cartoons and podcasts and other stuff about um, long-term thinking. And also what I've got there on my website is a resource list of long-term thinking organizations. So you can find out about Our Children's Trust or the Future Design Movement in Japan I mentioned, or films or music, which are all about long-term thinking. Remember, there's a whole flotilla, a whole bevy of time rebels out there, and you can go out there and connect with those that give you energy and inspiration. Totally, and and get get into that time rebel before, like if you want to be a hipster, like a time hipster, now is the time, because you know, 10 <laughs> to 50 years from now, it's going to be less cool, and so now is the time to be a time rebel. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Roman. I really enjoyed the conversation too, and it's fun to be in the same kind of ethnosphere as you as well. So thanks for coming on, and thanks listeners for coming and listening to us. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone. episode i really enjoyed it i think that it's cool how aligned roman and i seem to be about how we view the world and i really liked his perspective on language as one kind of meta note here i'm trying to be funnier in my podcasts and also in my reflections I'm trying to do more satire i think that's a role that i could play in society um <laughs> And so I want to try that out here for a second. You know, just some stand-up <laughs> uh, or whatever you want to call this. It just, you know, one thing that's kind of funny is uh, airplane food. No. <laughs> Time rebels. What, that's a funny term because it is rebellious. It's like usually when you're a kid, you know, you imagine you're like high school, you know, the, the kind of uh, rebellious kid in high school, he or she wore black clothes, you know, goth stuff. It was a punk, you know, it was like, 
in a mosh pit hitting each other or whatever, and they're rebelling against their parents. And what we're doing is something similar with someone like Greta. Like, <laughs> the fact that Greta has to be a rebel is so funny. Like, she's just a nerd kid, like an Asperger's-y, autistic-y nerd kid. But she somehow is a rebel because she's just telling it like it is. And it's funny that rebelliousness is, you know, caring about the future. It's like, you know, your parents are up there and they're like, we don't, you know, give a shit about climate change or whatever. And you're like, hey, mom and dad, I'm a rebel. Like, I do care about the future. I care about future generations. <laughs> I think that's funny. I think that that is, yeah, I think that's funny. Okay, that's me trying to be funny. Moving on. So <laughs> I want to talk about two things, language and religion and the first one on language it's going to be kind of a lot here but yeah we chatted a lot about language in the episode today with roman and part of that is you know this concept of metaphors we live by which is this great book by lakoff and it's this idea there's that book by lakoff and there's this other idea or this other book called the unfolding of language by guy duster and that book unfolding of language talks about how metaphors are you know, in Lakoff's book, he talks about, you know, argument as war, you know, using, uh, thinking of things that we do in life in metaphorical terms. And this unfolding of language book is great because it shows that that is how, that metaphors are how we as society have evolved language, where language started as us talking about the physical world. And then we started to need to represent abstract concepts. And we did so by speaking about them in terms of physical metaphors you know so you know saying someone is at the bottom of the corporate ladder is a good example of this these you know or another example this is you know at the beginning when we just had pictographs they were literal you know abstract concepts that took you know a buffalo and put it onto the cave painting wall and so that's kind of like a direct physical representation into the symbolic and so yeah, I think that when you think about this and, you know, how the, the metaphors that we use today and the ones especially that we use right now in late-stage capitalism, the question is, are there post-capitalist metaphors that we can and should be using? And so I want to explore some of those for a bit. First is, you know, the classic ideas of competition versus, you know, and war versus co-evolution or co-opetition and a dance. I think that's why I love this idea of dance so much. It's this physical metaphor for what we should, how we should actually feel about battling versus each other or not battling as we're dancing with each other. Another thing that that makes me think of is just the co-prefix, you know, co-housing, co-living, co-partnering, you know, co-evolution. And that co-prefix and seeing in your mind the kind of two fists at a similar height is... A good physical metaphor. If we move on to some of these other ideas of, you know, post-capitalism and, and self-taxing and generosity, these are the ideas that, you know, you know, for me, I self-tax 10% of my income. That idea being the physical metaphor here is overflow. That when we have this, you know, the quote-unquote now me overflow, that allows us to give back to others. And this is a versus the physical metaphor of being on the hamster wheel or, you know, moving up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, that is true to some extent, but we need to think of the bottoms 
of the of the pyramid that that doesn't totally get it because it doesn't show this interconnectedness that we can actually have get enough and get some of our needs met and then let that value kind of flow to others that only happens when we use this water metaphor and this overflow metaphor you know imagine it as like an ice tray and so yeah and this this idea of hey instead of being on this hamster wheel we can instead you know be you know have enoughness be full that we can sit and and i'm not sure the exact metaphor here but it is you know, being present or you know, being in relationship or something like that, and that it is a, yeah, that we can now have enoughness. This is pretty similar to, you know, as the hamster wheel goes away for income and trying to get more money and get more status, we can instead put that hamster wheel and point it towards our search for meaning, you know, that future me bucket. And there's a, you know, that's okay. It's okay to search for meaning and to put your hamster wheel there. And this is when you start to engage in these anti-fragile attractors. And the metaphors here are something like orbiting around your meaning or exploring branches of a tree or gaining texture within meditation or relationships or your garden or what have you. And co-journeying towards these things with others, you know, hand in hand. Those are some of the metaphors for meaning that I'm thinking about. There's other stuff, though, on this range of money as a, you know, water and as a resource. And part of it is, you know, this idea of positive sum stuff growing the pie versus, you know, zero sum stuff redividing it. And using that, you know, pie metaphor is pretty powerful. I think that there's a, you know, a related one is this idea of pools and that we can, if I have you know, it's a direct water metaphor, which is nice, is that, you know, the money goes to me, I allow it to flow through me, and then I can put it towards these pools, which are essentially grant-making entities where other folks can kind of pull out of it or, you know, use them as faucets. Faucet is a, you know, cryptocurrency term for a thing that you can pull from and get money. And, yes, I think the pool metaphor is really powerful, I'm wondering, you know, there's some related ones here around stakeholder and shareholder capitalism, you know, like the ownership economy. I don't think those metaphors are that great. I mean, those terms are fine, but I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there's some better physical metaphors that we can use there that would really, excuse me, show what we mean by a, you know, stakeholder capitalism. Another one that's related to all this stuff is, you know, all the metaphors around individualism. And, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty anti-individualism these days. And one way to think against that is, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants instead of thinking of, you know, the blank slate. And that, oh, I came up with this idea to have the reshow podcast. It's like, no, I've, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. And so would be curious for other metaphors there for collectivism. So that's one big bucket there of all these kind of metaphors around money and, and you know, the bento two-by-two. Two. I think there's other metaphors here around, you know, another root pillar, which is coherent pluralism. And the, you know, simplest metaphor here is just, you know, the lens where we have a, uh, <laughs> we are socialized in childhood and institutionalized and we can escape those things and put on new lenses for ourselves 
And that's a helpful way to think about this, different colored lenses that we use to address society. And you can even see this happening in internet speak with stuff like red pill and blue pill as you know, physical manifestations of learning new lenses, you know, or getting woke, becoming awake to these ideas. So I really like lens as an idea or glasses. Another very connected one here is, you know, the symbolic and the real, and especially the map and the territory. What a delightful metaphor that you have the territory underneath, aka the real, and then the map on top. That is helpful and crucial for understanding the world as it is and for our perceptions of the world as it is, and for our perceptions of the perceptions. I wish there was a better metaphor for simulcra, uh, which is the idea of that like symbolic stuff just like looping on itself, but whatever. In this reign of, uh, or in this vein of coherent pluralism, there's some stuff around intersectionality and social justice activism here that I want to explore for a second. One of them is around, I mean, intersectionality is a great metaphor. You can really just get the vibes of a Venn diagram there. I think that there's, you know, this moving walkway metaphor that someone like me, a rich, white, American, straight male, is on this moving walkway where all of society has just opened all the doors. Again, another metaphor here for me, and that's great, and that's why anti-racism is a great kind of language tool to respond to that, where it's like, hey, if everybody's on, if all the privileged folks are on these moving walkways, I have to be anti those. I can't just move you know just do my normal thing because if i do my normal thing that would just be continuing racist acts and so i need to be anti-racist by moving against the moving walkway i think that one that's interesting here and just you know when you engage when you're kind of engaging with cancel culture or engaging with folks around this stuff there's a you know this term of like microaggression that has some pretty intense physical metaphors to it or even you know this (laughs) this comes across a lot in the language on the internet where you have people who are claiming that violence of words leads to physical violence and this is where it's like you know trauma and and you know uh, things lead or some of the that's some of the words that people use here and i think i don't know i just wonder when we're at a better state in society where you know these microaggressions which i think is again a good term for (laughs) what we mean or for for, i think it's a good thing that talks about what's happening when people are just like speaking randomly and then accidentally say something that is racist or sexist or whatever i think that's a good term but you can imagine a different thing a different version of reality where we call them something like micro mistakes or micro i love this idea of lend me your ideas that aren't yet fully formed and that has this kind of like physical metaphor for me where you are baking something or whatever and you're like you show it to someone you're like i don't really know what this is like but like can you check it out or whatever it's fuzzy something like that so i think i'm curious to see how microaggression as a term changes as we get better at not doing it and also not you know ostracizing folks for doing it there's this leads to a, a big section of ones all about the internet as a breeding ground for physical metaphors and as a yeah and and so i think that there's like you know there's a whole book about this called algorithms we live by and these are things like you know breadth first versus depth first search where we can uh in this that's computer science algorithm where if you're trying to find someone to marry at the beginning it's probably good to do breadth first where you kind of try out a bunch of different people and then choose somebody and like go depth with them or whatever 
And so there's a couple of metaphors like this, like when people in conversations these days, people say, oh, let's double click on that, you know, they used to, uh, you know, so that is, uh, or, you know, the, the classic, so that's, that's when the computer world comes into our other language. And then it can also happen vice versa, where the physical world comes into the computer world with stuff like the trash can icon. And so, yeah, as we think about the, the computers and the internet here, I mean, part of these, these physical metaphors are things like the fire hose of information, you know, or the feed. We have this feed. And again, we should rethink, should we call it the feed, you know, or can we call it something like, you know, something like Rome Research? It's like, it's a network graph. <laughs> That's something that we probably want more instead of just being, having like a feed. Uh, similarly, you know, there's this idea of free reach versus free speech and the, the physical metaphor of friction where we've taken information, we've made it frictionless, where it can just you know fly all over the, all over the internet or wherever, and where and, and it, we should add we need to add friction back to the system. There's some other similar ones like that with like you know the metaphor of you know a, a public square versus a private you know in your living room, and so these are kind of end-to-end -end encryption or this is like you know Twitter you know putting a status out to everybody versus, you know, a Snapchat or end-to-end -end encryption style thing where you're in, you're in your living room. And so I think this is all to say that, yeah, those are, those are good, helpful metaphors, physical metaphors for thinking about how information flows on the internet. And there is a, a couple other quick ones here. One is, you know, we can think of the whole thing as a you know, this human colossus, you know, or this networked human organism, or, you know, the collective brain or Moloch. And I'm wondering, yeah, those are some good metaphors. And I think the physicality, you know, the human colossus really has a, a physical aspect to it. And so I'm wondering for something like the networked human organism, if there's a better physical metaphor there. Also versus, I was just chatting about the public square versus the living room and a beautiful version of that also is, you know, the dark forest metaphor or the digital garden where you have a sp space that is away from the scary world out there. You know, this is digital walled and ponding where you can kind of have more vulnerable discussions with folks. And again, those are physical metaphors. So uh, let me say one final note here, kind of back to the human colossus network human organism piece. You know, we're moving from this reality, this industrial age reality where the metaphors were machines and the metaphors were also centralized, centralizing entities like Hobbes's Leviathan, you know, as the state. And the metaphors that we're going to switch to are these bottom-up organism metaphors, you know, like trees and things like that. And so I'm curious to see how we, yeah, how we do that. So, uh, yeah, that's, those are some things in the juicy metaphor space. And yeah, very excited to see how physical metaphors get built into post-capitalist language and how we can use that language to create better outcomes for us. There's a funny thing here, though, which is that, you know, and I chat about this actually in our last episode, which is by, you know, the in the last episode, we chat about the mask emoji and how it went from a sad face to now a happy face. And that's both, it's good because we should be happy in COVID times and, and you can be happy while you're wearing a mask. But it's also a little bit like Orwellian where you're like, be happy while you're wearing a mask and like the symbols don't reflect the reality of the situation. 
but I think so we, we have some of these issues here as well where it's like should we call it a feed because that's what it really feels like right now or can we call it something different like a serendipity machine or a roam network graph or whatever that is less true for what it exists as today but is maybe a more aspirational vision one final question I have here on language is it's interesting that stuff like you know me too or black lives matter or make america great again they don't really have metaphors in them or the not they don't have these physical metaphors and i'm not sure why that's true i it's that's interesting to me i think there's something about the binaryization of slogans i yeah i, I don't know i don't know so i, I i'm curious to learn about the intersection of hashtags and these metaphors okay so that's on language i want to say one other quick note here on you know the theory of change that uh roman has and how long-termism will be manifest in you know institutions that we have in reality and society and i think that part of I think the most one of the most interesting things here, there's like some simple ones where it's like, you know that there are going to be some laws that protect the rights of future people or the rights of the land, or there's going to be some governmental entities that have, um, you know, that, that are future committees or whatever. But I think this religion piece is pretty interesting in thinking about how, yeah, how long-termism will be implemented in religions. It's been... You know, traditionally, this has been done with, you know, moralizing gods and using religion and the promise of an afterlife to kind of suck money from folks. And, yeah, it's interesting to see some proto-examples in things like Earth Day in the environmentalist movement and how long-termism gets represented there. So I don't have much else to say here except... I am curious to see how the norms of long-termism get built into new religions and codified in their kind of bill of rights and bill of duties. Great. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and hope you enjoyed this little outro. Bye.